This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. And a lot of warnings, a lot of buzzwords, a lot of warnings about the weather. Didn't get the snow that many people expected yesterday. There wasn't some five to eight eight centimeter dumping in the city yesterday. But uh, slippery sidewalks. You know how you're not going down? but you're not sure you won't in the next five or six steps. You haven't gone down yet, like with how slippery it is. Walking outside your house, you got steps to navigate. I was a little too quick on the steps, and then I could feel a little crunch underneath my feet, and I thought, this is not the way to go. I don't mean die, but this is not the way, or or get taken to a, a hospital and ambulance. I told you yesterday how quick our ambulance response is in uh, southern Ajax um, in SA, but I wasn't going to risk it uh, this morning. So, um, yes, you'll have to scrape. You'll have to potentially brush. It was more scraping than brushing this morning. And on a uh, Tuesday garbage day, needed to give myself a little bit more time. Really poor planning because I saw the white stuff on the ground last night in the uh, ah, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock range. And I'm thinking to myself, I really should be putting stuff out. But we had one bad incident one time. And it's affected us for the rest of our existence. We were going to, I think my wife and I were going to Michigan. And I think we had a funeral to go to in Windsor, but we decided to go stay over in Michigan. And to attend the funeral the next day, we put everything out early. I can't remember. Somebody must have came and stayed with our kids because this is like about six years ago. Uh, And then next thing we knew, our kids were at school and the neighbor's kids my neighbor saw that there was just just garbage and recycle strewn everywhere from uh, this, this, you know, this trash bandit pandas or whatever. And so they get into those things. So they're not actual uh, pandas, but like raccoons. And uh, and, and so they they go through everything when you leave it out overnight. But we probably put out the compost as well, which is the the ultimate sin is putting in a, out a green bin of everything that you've eaten in the kitchen the previous week. So how interested are raccoons in uh, boxes that had like, you know, like a like a spot buster, a wet vac in them? Not very, but food that'll that'll do it every time. Old orange peels, coffee grounds, mashed potatoes. that wasn't I get it's horrible. Right. But that that's all five food groups for them. They check all five of those food group boxes to, to roll out and make a mess. So what he sent us was a photo of his kids, and we were mortified seeing this, cleaning up our garbage that two adults, allegedly, had left outside the night before, thinking we'll be smart about this and we'll kind of box in the the green bin with all the the compost and we'll just surround it with recycle bins. (laughs) They're not going to fall for that uh, monkey business. The raccoons uh, will be able to to move them all out of the way. And next thing you know, we've got a mess. Like, it was strewn all over the road. It looked like the green bin had been hit and run over by a transport truck six or seven times. It was carnage on the road. And we're like, oh, we're just mortified that these teenagers next door, good kids, uh, are picking up our food. So we almost never put the stuff out the night before. But I'm putting it out this morning thinking, slippery. I could go down at a certain point in time. There was a sportscaster friend of mine in Detroit who was about 15 years older than me, actually. And he went down um, and like just absolutely ripped his leg up. He was on crutches probably for the next nine, 10 months. 
Um, and I think he banged up his shoulder as well. Like it takes one fall. So you got to be careful on the sidewalks. Hopefully it's not your garbage day today. And if it is, get going. Um, because I've left it the last few weeks. So I thought be a good person today. Be a good person as many times as, as I can be during garbage day and, and, and recycle day especially. But I also uh, couldn't get the window down during my uh, coffee pickup slash selection. And uh, and that's always a weird feeling also is ah, you got to pull up ahead of the drive through window, get out of the car. And the guy's like, what is this guy doing walking to the window? But I did that. And uh, and, you know, no harm, no harm, no foul. So, yeah, it's slick this morning, but you probably won't see the accumulation of snow. I don't think you got to shovel a walkway or a driveway or anything, but it's icy. That's for sure. Um, and it's going to hold for a little while because we're only headed up to a high of minus one degree today. We had good times coming Wednesday, Thursday with these four or five degree temperatures. And I'm talking to Dave Bradley, our, uh, our, our news anchor, who you'll hear top of the hour at six o'clock. And he's like, they, they canceled the four and five degree days. We got to get an update on this because it's apparently going to be around three degrees instead tomorrow and only one degree on Thursday. Um, for me, just a little personal uh, slash professional note. This is the last show for me before next week on Wednesday on the 27th. Everybody takes Christmas holidays at, uh, at different times. Um, this is the way I sort of wanted to slot it. And I didn't want to be gone too long, but I also didn't want to not get days uh, in before the holidays to catch up and run errands. I had three days, I think, two weeks ago. And they went by like it was like like a nine hour uh, period of time. So the goal is really put a list together, do the actual things on the list. Don't sort of wake up and then all of a sudden leave the house around one fifty three in the afternoon if you're going to think you're going to run errands and get stuff done. So that should be the plan a little later on today. There's a big announcement coming. Um, I'll be driving in my car. It's an internal combustion engine car. Um, tootling around tomorrow, Thursday and Friday instead of being on the show with you. But uh, Ben Mulrooney will be in instead of me. Um, and it, there's going to be an announcement today about converting away from those internal combustion engine cars. Big target being set by the country of Canada today. We don't know how this is 12 years from now. I couldn't tell you what the world looks like 12 weeks from now. And I wouldn't even try and guess as to what it looks like 12 months from now. But 12 years from now. The goal is, in a country that could have, you name it, 45, 46, 47 million people in it by now. We just cracked the 40 mark last year. The concept is, if I go to a car dealer and I want to buy exactly what I have right now, an internal combustion engine vehicle, brand new, all the fixings, all the trimmings, like your turkey dinner uh, six days from now, I can't get it. And uh, I'm not... So sure, I love the sound of that when that tip, you know, tinkles off my tongue that way, because I am a believer that we probably should get to the point where we're driving more electric vehicles. I think there's benefits to it. I don't think it's going to do many of the things claimed that uh, some of the environmental uh, warriors feel it will. But. Zero emission is better than lots of emission, and hybrid is better also than lots of emission, nonstop, full stop. Um, but what I don't love is the idea that there's a little bit of coercion here. I mean, there is. 
the, it's not going to be a free market. And so far, we're all keep, we all keep waiting, I think, for these incentives for us to buy electric vehicles. They're more expensive right now. Um, there's more concern about where's a charging station going to be. There's a thing that is called charge anxiety. And many Canadians who have electric vehicles or haven't bought them yet, or even hybrids, claim that they have. They suffer from this uh, malady because they just think I'm going to be on the road. I'm going to take a long trip and that EV is not going to be able to do what I ask it to do. Now, um, if you've ever driven a car, period. I mean, I've been a car driver since 1988. So uh, I look at it and I say there's been many a time with especially older cars where the car isn't terribly reliable. I used to have my dad help me buy my first car in 1993, which was a 1983 Mazda RX-7. It's a sleek little car. I loved it. We bought it. We bought it for thirty five hundred dollars in nineteen ninety three. Uh, he won't mind me saying that because I think we borrowed. Uh, we had fifteen hundred of our own. We borrowed two thousand to buy it and then pay the insurance. So, um, but it would not run in the winter. It was very unreliable. You had a choke pull out button, and you were, to be honest, to be non graphic, choking the life out of that thing, pulling, pulling, pulling. Hmm. Until until you just would either give up or the damn thing would start. And if it didn't start, get a bus, get a taxi, do whatever you need to do. But it was a really unreliable car. So anybody who's ever lived with, hey, I'm not sure my car is going to start today. I'm not sure my car can make it down a road that is snow covered or icy. Well, that's, that's my life with that car for a good four years. You know exactly what I'm talking about with electric vehicles. So the original EV sales target was 10% for the Canadian government in 2025. We're probably going to get there. Like it's silly. That was a silly goal to deride and mock that we wouldn't get to one out of every 10 cars being sold, being an electric vehicle. Where did that, where did that come into risk? That came into risk during the pandemic. When if you went in at all to buy a new car, they'd say, we can't get you that car you want. That EV is not available. You, won't, you can't get it for a year. We had that very same conversation. We were asked to trade in our used car because somebody would buy it, and there was a real run on used cars. So dealers would call people they sold cars to and say, can we put you in something newer because we know we can sell your used one. We can get a good price for it. We'll take the hassle away from you for doing it. So we went in, and we were really interested in an electric car, and they're like, yeah, that car that you like has like a 13-month waiting period. We wanted a car in the next month. You're going to take our car and then make us wait 13 months? Nah. So um, I think that's been part of the delay in pushing to that target and that 10%. But I think also what we're waiting here in Ontario, we're not buying EVs like they are in Quebec. And we're not buying EVs like they are in BC. We're doing better than Alberta. (laughs) Who isn't? Uh, But we're not doing as well as BC or Quebec. And we're probably just sitting around waiting for more incentive to do it. And our economy is not great right now. It's a, it's, a, it's a rich person's problem to snap a finger and say, how about a $60,000 EV in my driveway? Magic. There it is. We're, the rest of us who think we need uh, a new car are either holding out, we want that rebate because every dollar matters, or we're content just sort of driving an older, older car that could be a potential hunk of junk. So this is an interesting announcement coming today. Uh, at 11 o'clock. I want to bring up inflation numbers as well in that before the end of our show this morning, before the end of our uh, my last show before Christmas, I hope that we can give you good news about Canada's inflation rate. Um, it should be lower. It should get to that one one to three percent range. 
that'll A, make people breathe a little easier in that all these interest rate uh, hikes and holds are doing the right thing. We were at, uh, it's still hard to believe, we were sitting there closer to 7% in the summer. They want the long-term average to be a lot closer to 3 but uh, it was 3.8 in September. It was 3.12 in October. It was as high as 4 back in August. So the hope is, get this thing under 3. We were under 3, by the way, in June with a 2.81, and you might remember there was some high-fiving and celebrating from Canada's finance minister. She did a new she did a uh, conference out in Aspen, Colorado, and the interviewer finished up the interview and Christopher Freeland. I'm going to play that tape for you after six o'clock. The interviewer was very much like, "Hey, you didn't ask me," or she was very much, "Yeah, you didn't ask me about our interest rates." Yeah, really good. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's the worst of Christopher Freeland impression ever, and it wasn't intentional. But then we we shot up again the rest of the summer. Next thing you know, we're at four, and we're thinking, if you've got a mortgage due. If you want to go in and buy one of these new cars, that interest rate is just siphoning, no pun intended, the enjoyment away from potentially doing that. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. This time on Tuesdays, we love checking with April Engelberg on a lot of uh, issues within the city uh, itself. She brings us some amazing stuff, some great opinion on it, and she joins us again right now. It's great to have you on. Thanks for getting up so early. Good morning, Greg. My pleasure. Yeah, we're uh, we, we've kind of got a little bit to review of uh, of last week uh, based on city council just rushing through uh, a lot of things. As to your prediction a couple weeks ago, the city kind of backpedaled, didn't they, on what they're doing with rideshare licenses with the Uber lawsuit? They got told, "Don't do this. Don't put don't don't cap these rideshares. They might sue you." Then when they did it anyway. The city solicitor said you can probably you'll probably lose this lawsuit and then there's a payout of some sort. So there's a real 180 from Olivia Chow and city council last week. A hundred percent. So what happened is city council brought a what they claimed a, a surprise motion uh, to cap the number of rideshare licenses. So that's Uber licenses, Lyft licenses. And they said it was for environmental reasons. And they said on public record they deliberately did not have consultations. They they deliberately just made this a complete surprise so that it would be effective because they thought that otherwise too many people would apply for licenses in the interim. Um, Uber came out and brought an injunction against the city uh, because the city breached their own typical policies and procedures where, as we know, they consult on everything a lot, but they deliberately did not consult this time. And the city was advised, you're going to lose. The Uber is going to win the injunction. And so what they did is they, Olivia Chow just did a complete flop saying, uh, let's, let's not, let's cancel this motion and let's start doing the consultations with the goal of coming back in about three or four months. So we'll see what happens the next time. I don't know if the fight is necessarily over, but they completely flip-flopped and And, they were right to do so. And you've probably seen some of the reporting that there's a strong taxi lobby that like Olivia Chow's seen Mm -hmm. as a pro-taxi mayor. John Tory was seen as a very pro-Uber Lyft mayor. There was a lot of push and pull on John Tory back almost in the middle of his uh, eight-year run, April, that uh, from the taxi industry saying, you're giving them too many concessions here, allowing them just to walk right in. You're not even regulating them as tightly as you regulate the cab industry. Definitely. I'll say there's tight, there's big lobbyists on both sides, right? Like Uber mm-hmm. has their own lobby team and then taxis have their own lobby team. And it obviously taxis want 
less Ubers because they're taking away their business. So, but however, as mentioned, I think Uber and Lyft are very necessary in the city because a lot of the time the taxis won't take you for short rides. And just in terms of being modern, I obviously support using both Lyft and Uber. April Engelberg is our guest on 640 Toronto. I want to get to um, the police budget, uh, some budget issues that will come up in a few weeks in January after the Christmas break. How did you view the uh, Rob Ford Stadium debate for Centennial Park? There were obviously people that came back around on the concept of it that voted and and were very adamantly, aggressively against it back in 2017. Things have changed in six years. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So I think it meant something that Olivia Chow was pushing for it. We don't really know exactly what happened when her and Ford made that uh, new deal for the city. For all we know, they had discussions about it. But also what I found was really interesting is, except for Josh Matlow, all all of the, you know, tenured city councillors supported it. The councillors that voted against it were all the newer city councillors. So I think it makes sense. I think uh, like love him or hate him. He's somebody that's very loved by so many people in the city. And if you talk to people that were closer to him, what they would say is he was a nice person that had addiction issues. Obviously I personally never voted for him or supported him as mayor, but I think this is an appropriate type of thing to honor him. It's not like we're, you know, renaming the CN tower or something. This is a football field in Etobicoke. So it's just the appropriate thing for his kind of passion. And I have no problem with it. Right. And and it's interesting you say that because I sure didn't have a problem if Olivia Chow had said, you know, I've been talking to Doug. We've been doing trying to put this deal together. And I remembered that, that he said that this would mean something to him and his family at, at a certain point in time. I would like that just makes perfect sense. I don't think there's too many people that would have dismissed that April. But it almost turned into this like this game of Clue where Paul Ainsley came to me and then Shelly Carroll said, yeah, I agree with Paul Ainsley. We're both thinking about that uniquely. And then Mayor Mayor Chow goes along with him and like, just say like John Tory's going to get something named after him someday. David Miller is. These are Olivia Chow is. These are things that are going to happen. Yeah, a lot of the, the city council debates and discussions are all premeditated where, you know, they pass off who's going to bring a motion and who's going to say what. And it, it's all kind of pre-planned. So that doesn't surprise mm. me. Uh, police budgets in the uh, news cycle this morning, the idea of spending more money than last year. And I referenced that in January of 23, um, violence, safety on the streets. Some of these incidents that had happened in Toronto needing quick police response times were such hot button issues. I think it was a bit of a, a walkover for then Mayor John Tory to be able to go and say, listen, we just need more officers everywhere. But the city and the budget crunch they're in right now, April, is there going to be some resistance to spending more money on police services this time around? Definitely. So I think we don't need to conflate the two necessarily. Obviously, right now, 911 is part of the police budget. It's, it's one of their duties. One option would be for that to be a city, allow uh, that to be separate from the police. But what we're looking at it with the report that came out yesterday from the CBC is that the wait times are getting worse every single year. Uh, for calling 911. And what I found really interesting in the article is a new thing that we've had for the last year or two is the community crisis response. So, I mean, you can call 911, but if somebody is having a mental health issue, instead of sending police, they will send people more appropriate to help the mental health issue. But as much as that's really, you know, saving lives, being helpful, et cetera, it's actually taking up so much more time on the 911 call because you call in one one and then they have to transfer you to this team and then they have to explain everything and get your consent and whatnot. So it's actually really slowing down the 911 time. 
So I think they'll have to come up with a better solution for how to speed up that process of getting people from who called 911 transferred over. And that might be a real time saver. Yeah. Even just seeing yesterday that it could take, you know, an average wait time is close to three minutes just to make that call, just to answer that call. And are there frivolous 911 calls, stuff that emergency services shouldn't be dealing with? Absolutely. Maybe more than ever. But the bottom line is that's all, that's way too long to pick up the phone is to have it ringing for three or four minutes in a, in a massive emergency. It just is. Definitely. I, I saw a, accident near me a couple months ago and it was a delivery uh probably like uber eats or something driver on one of those e-bikes and got run like his arm run over by a car or something and um there's a bunch of people waiting around and i could not believe how long the 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 911 wait time was it was extremely long it was definitely more than five minutes if not longer so it's was that a busy time was that a busy time of day for for you know an ambulance to get there I don't think so. It was the middle of the day. Yeah. Um, but if you read in that story, it, it shows you like how important it is. There was a couple that called because their baby was choking and it was over five minutes. Like by the time they finally got through, they'd already saved their baby. So we definitely need the 911 uh, time like under a minute. I prefer under 30 seconds. Yeah. And then and I think they'll make that case uh, with the next police budget. April, thanks so much for this this morning. I know we're not chatting next week uh, with uh, with Christmas and Boxing Day, but thanks so much for all your contributions. You know, I appreciate it. And uh, we'll speak real soon. Thanks so much. Have a great one week off. You bet. April Engelberg Bye. joining us on Toronto Today. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Well, I mentioned it earlier. Try, try again. He's now a key member of Toronto City Council uh, in Ward 20. He is Parthi Candevel. It's great to have you on Toronto today, Parthi. I appreciate the time. Good morning, Greg. Thanks for having me. Well, I mentioned congratulations on your victory just a few weeks ago, but I mentioned this. It's not like there's much of a honeymoon period. You're jumping right in and voting on massively important economic issues, some cultural issues. You were really into it last week, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. That's the job. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I, I appreciate it. I, I love the complexity and, uh, uh, you know, the ability to make uh, to have my voice as part of that mix. One thing that keeps coming into my email box, and I wonder if it is for you, is the renaming of Young and Dundas Square. It was bound to be contentious. There were bound to yeah. be arguments for and against. Um, but I'm hearing from a lot of people about Sankofa Square only in yeah. that there wasn't a massive consultation process with the public. We had a fun little contest when we, when Sky Dome was built and we said, what do you want to name it? It's such a, it's such a cultural hub of the city. Mm-hmm. This one moved really fast. And I think maybe it's the lack of consultation more than the name party that is people concerned. Yes. What are people telling you? What are your constituents mm-hmm. saying early days on this one? Uh, completely. That was something I heard loud and clear both last year in the general and in this year in my by-election and, uh, you know, beyond the, um, uh, the usual concern about taxpayer money. It, it was even from the left as well, because they felt it was performative when the city is not making investments um, in, you know, uh, priority areas in, in, into youth and recreation programs in the black community. Uh, it's, it's, uh, mm-hmm. it, it, there was concern on the left, but also, you know, it's a slippery slope. If we're going down this, we're opening up, looking at other street names or, or subway stations. And the, and the subway one is the one that I had the most uh, contention with because, uh, you know, for 1.6 million for one of our busiest stations, the price of a, you know, of a house in Toronto to forever have your, 
um, you know, in this case is TMU, uh, I think needed much more thought and consultation. I think we get more money out of that. And then we're opening up, uh, you know, different stations. This In this case, it was two. So that, that concern, I remember three years ago when I was on the school board as trustee, when the same questions came up, we chose not to go down the, the renaming path. And, and we looked at investments to actually have positive impact. So that was something um, of, of concern. Well, well, I I know that uh, police budget is kind of in the news cycle this morning, and you mentioned $1.6 million. Um, There's obviously going to be, uh, I think, a bit of contention among councillors and among constituents as well as to what the police's mandate is, what it should be. We've obviously had some benefits of having 211 people being able to dial that when they're in a mental health crisis, but there's not a crime being committed. There's no uh, risk of violence there. But I think you hear from a lot of people, and you probably do in your ward as well, uh, Mm -hmm. of people that just either it's about safety, it's protection of their neighborhoods, it's vandalism, it's cars going missing and getting stolen. This probably won't be the time to uh, to limit what we spend on police. I I think uh, think that's a complete concern. It's something I heard at the door issues on, on safety and response times. And, and that's part of, you know, we're seeing historic growth in our city. And that ratio, I think people want to see maintained in terms of police officer per uh, number of civilians, uh, which is not to say there isn't room for improvement. I think uh, there's need for better training or better representation. I know uh, South Asian, East Asian communities are looking for more representation in the police force. Um, so I think that is, is, is going to be an important part of our budget deliberations. Uh, and it doesn't mean we don't invest in alternative conflict resolution mm-hmm. strategies, including de-escalation, mental health professionals. I think we can chew gum and walk at the same time. We just have to be careful of where uh, we place our dollars, and that will require reductions in other areas of the city's budget. So um, I think that need for uh, addressing response times and uh, uh, safety concerns is real, uh, but we can also couple that with other uh, strategic investments in how we respond to other safety concerns from a mental health and de-escalation perspective. I think you hit on it, Parthi, is the idea is you, we can't spread our officers' time any more thinner than it probably is already going right now. Like the idea of, of a burned out cop. We worry about this. You were in education. We worry about this with our teachers. We worry about this with our nurses at the provincial level. This is something a city, a municipality can have some control over. You mentioned emergency response times, but we've also got to keep our members, our men and women that protect us. We've got to keep them eager to do the job every day and capable as importantly of doing the job every day. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's, you know, part and parcel of, of having an engaged, uh, uh, you know, uh, not just police force, but emergency response team that's uh, fully dedicated. It's 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 tremendous work. And, you know, we've got to remember sometimes we forget that, you know, our police officers deal with the worst in our society and that has a toll. And this is why we need to bring a smarter approach uh, to where we mm. Uh, how we support uh, them and, and all communities, right? Tran- I got about a minute here, but transit's so important to your your neighborhood, your war. Jamal Myers is in Scarborough too. He's the chair of the TTC. There's got to be that balance, doesn't there, with um, with with TTC availability, but also making it easier for people to get from A to B on the roads. There's a lot of work that could be done in the next year for people in your ward. 
completely. I heard that loud and clear uh, for about congestion in Scarborough. Uh, for your Scarborough listeners, they know the red bus lanes on Kennedy and Midland have been a nightmare in terms of congestion. Um, and this is something we uh, we want the city to invest in uh, that that promise of resurfacing the Scarborough RT into the express busway. TDC riders want it. That's quicker commute times for them and relieves the congestion of two main arteries in Scarborough, Kennedy and Midland. And of course, we're seeing construction of the Scarborough subway on McCowan. So right now, uh, traffic is a, is a big, a big issue for Scarborough folks. Parthi Candivelle, Ward 20 City Councilor. Again, great to have you aboard uh, at City Hall at Nathan Phillips Square. And we'll have more chats in the new year, Parthi. Thanks so much for the time today. Sounds good, Greg. Thanks so much. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. I think we're seeing this a lot in the UK. A lot of these Saturday rallies, you end up seeing stuff and and people are saying, how could this person not be arrested? Why have the cops not taken this guy into custody? He's causing a lot of trouble. He's saying horrific things. But then there's a knock on the door the next day. Now, I don't know if our Toronto police or our police across our country are necessarily doing that or whether they're empowered to do it as well. David Amber Amber is a criminal lawyer and he joins us now on Toronto Today. Thanks so much for the time. First of all, you made the point and you brought up something called investigative detention and I responded to you. Explain to our audience what that is and, and why you thought it should have been utilized on Sunday, David. Uh, thanks for having me on the show, sure. Greg. Um, I mean, we all saw the video and the story that the police are going with is number one, that uh, the, the threat wasn't directed at the officer, and number two, that the person didn't want to press charges. And then the fallback they're saying is that, well, it would have been too risky to have, uh, to, to have intervened. So it, it begs the question, what if another type of crime was taking place? What if someone was being assaulted? What if the officer was being disarmed? What if there was a sexual assault? Were there enough officers to be able to control the situation or not? If there weren't enough officers to be able to respond to a violent crime, then that's a problem and there should have been more officers. But if they were there and they were there for a reason, presumably they should be able to respond to violent crime by either arresting somebody um, for for committing a crime or, as you just asked me about, doing an investigative detention. Because an investigative detention is where the police can force someone to stay in place, identify who they are, and investigate whether or not a crime was taking place. Because this idea that, that the, the victim did not want to press charges, um, that's not borne out anywhere in the video. They, what would normally happen in a case like this is they would detain that person. I mean, they had enough to already arrest him, but they would at least detain him while another officer would speak to the victim and find out what the victim's uh, wishes are. That's uh, a process that takes a little bit of time. I think you make a great point, because if I see something as heinous or grievous as um, you know, a, a couple having a, a domestic argument in a grocery store and the man shoves the woman, the cop should be called to take him, as you said, into custody and investigate. He should be charged whether she wants that to happen or not. Now, she might be a key role in getting a conviction, but that's down the road. You have to get to come in, take that guy away and charge him with the crime that he just committed. If it's physical violence, do you not? I tend to agree with that. Now, there are special policies with regards to domestics, with regards to sexual assaults, with regards to uh, impaired, where the police don't have discretion. If this were a bar fight, for example, we we like to think that our officers have a little bit of discretion that if two guys sort of 
kind of shake hands after a, a bar fight. Maybe one person was the aggressor, but neither of them yeah. wants to lay charges. The police can have discretion in some cases, but that requires an investigation. These officers stood there like deers, the deer in a headlight. Headlights you see when the camera pans yep. towards yep. them, uh, and 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 they were doing they were doing nothing. And I mean, it it it. it also begs the question, why are they acting this way in certain types of protests, but not other types of protests? And we saw across the country people being arrested for not wearing masks in large protests against uh, government COVID measures. Yeah, absolutely. They, they had no problem disrupting a crowd and pulling somebody out of that. Or we've seen we've all seen that famous video in Alberta where they're, these guys are outdoors playing hockey, right? The sun's setting and the cops go walk out onto the ice and and yank the dudes off the ice and arrest them because they're not supposed to be playing hockey. I, I bring this up about the mall as well, because you made a great point in, in some social media interactions. The malls like Eaton Center in this case, the owners of Eaton Center sure shouldn't get to dictate what the cops do or not do that. that that's we, we're in dangerous territory if a business owner gets to make those distinctions about what's legal or not on their property. Well, yeah, you can't you can't you can't like beat your spouse on private property and say I'm on private property. You can't commit a violent offense and claim that private property is is the is the basis, nor can the owner of that private property um, say, I, I, I choose not to get involved. The police swear an oath. They swear an oath, and there's a code of conduct that is misconduct, and that's one of the reasons why I want to know who these officers are, that, 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 that it is misconduct for a police officer to not act where, where, there is, where is there a law to be enforced. Now, it, it very well could be that the misconduct wasn't from these officers. It very well could be that the misconduct came from uh, superior officers telling them that except in the most violent of crimes that they're not to act in any capacity. And I think that that would be misconduct to put officers in a position to not act in contradiction of their oath and also to put them in a situation where they might feel unsafe acting. Because as I indicated at the, at the outset, if they, they were there for a reason, if, if they're not able to intervene in some capacity where there's a violent crime being committed, then what are they doing there? I'd make the case, David, also, I got under a minute, but, but it, you know, it, it isn't, it's not, it shouldn't be in their um, emotional jurisdiction to decide if I make an arrest here, mayhem is going to ensue. It doesn't work that way in, it wouldn't work that way in a sports stadium. It wouldn't work that way in an airport. That's for damn sure. And as you said, in a bar, they're not going to be like, well, a greater bar fight might break out. No, no, no. If something, if you spot something illegal, violent, a death threat, like you said, there's an oath to act, is there not? There is. And look, they're trained to deal with situations like that. They're, they're armed. They're given use of force options. And if, if yeah. the, the guest you had on the show yesterday truly believed that it was avoiding a bad situation from happening, then, then the fault is on the, on the shoulders of the police for having put those officers in that position. But absent yeah. that, absent a situation that was untenable, these officers should have acted. Hey, David, really appreciate you coming on the show this morning. Thanks so much for the time. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Uh, the issue of, of Young Dundas Square becoming Sankofa Square, not going away anytime soon. I think there's a lot of people uh, reacting to it, um, and it's good to have conversations, good to have debate. We're, we're able to hook up with somebody who was on the committee to name the square Sankofa Square. She's an associate professor of history at University of Toronto. She teaches Caribbean and Atlantic world history. She is Melanie Newton. Melanie, it's great to have you on the show. I appreciate you making the time. 
Thank you. Good morning. And thank you for instructing our young people today. It's uh, <laughs> it's uh, end of another semester. I'm sure you're uh, you're breathing in, breathing out. Uh, four months went by just like that, didn't it? It was a it was quite a semester. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about um, the the name itself and uh, and and sort of how we came to Sankofa Square as one of the finalists. What was the significance of it to you, and why was it so important? So the name Sankofa dates from unknown exactly when, but beyond the 18th century, at the height of the transatlantic slave trade. And it was created by um, craftspeople who created these symbols. They're called adinkra symbols, and they were created to be reproduced on cloth, so fabrics and pottery and items of everyday use across a large area of West Africa. These were craftspeople from an area of Africa where the, it's a family of languages called on languages. Um, so, you know how you have families of languages like Germanic mm-hmm. languages and Latin, um, Romance languages and so on. So it's a huge area of West Africa, but these were the people who were targeted um, as the victims of transatlantic slavery. So these are created in this period and this concept, Sankofa, which is often represented in, a, in these Adinkra symbols as a bird with its body facing forward, looking back over its own back to pick up a little egg. And it means um, look back to move forward or go back and get it. It's translated in a number of ways, but it basically means, you know, reflecting and reclaiming the past in order to move forward into the future. So it was created by people who were themselves um, surviving a catastrophe, um, which was transatlantic slavery. And it has um, crossed the Atlantic um, with enslaved people, and it is reproduced um, in some parts of the Americas, you know, precisely in that way. It's a bird looking back over its shoulder, picking up an egg. There's another way to show it, which is a stylized heart, which you sometimes mm-hmm. see in Louisiana. So it was popular art. Right? Did, did you feel a sense of um, what were your emotions when Thursday comes around? Chris Moyes puts it on the table, the city councilor. That's his ward, uh, in essence, Young Dundas Square, and says, this is the route we're going to go. How'd that make you feel? It was quite emotional. Um, by the time the motion came up at council, I'd actually been at council for several hours. So yeah. I was also quite tired. <laughs> I was present when the vote happened, so I might have been a little spaced out. But it it was really emotional to see that um, this decision was actually taking place. Um, we as a committee had recommended it. It was a unanimous decision by the members of the committee. Uh, we had worked on a consensus model over the two years that we had done our work. And in the end, this was the name that everyone agreed on. When someone had come to you before, uh, Melanie, and, and said, I, I want to have a conversation about who Henry Dundas was, is it a very nuanced, balanced conversation, or is it a difficult conversation to have because you and, and others just see him as, well, it's it's a flawed man from a flawed era, and we shouldn't name things after it? Or was there some, when you'd have that conversation, was there some give and take? Did you see some of the benefit of his name being on as many things? Like, I, I grow up, and Dundas's name is just everywhere here in Ontario. What, what did you, what were those conversations like for you? what you mean by balanced um so up until quite recently in fact up until this debate began in edinburgh in scotland over his statue there was actually no scholarly debate about henry dundas there was absolute agreement um that he was a one of the most powerful supporters of slavery that there ever was in the british government 
He was uh, the Minister of War and Colonies um, and the Home Secretary during the French and Haitian revolutions. And it was very clear from the policies that he pursued that he was strongly opposed to abolition of slavery. Uh, so he's, a, he's one of the most powerful post-slavery advocates in history. So there's not really, and there's still no real debate about that. Um, only recently, when this debate began, did you have some people who I will stress are not, for the most part, um, actually I can't think of a single one who's actually really an expert in this field, I'm yeah. not going to name any names, who have come up and made this kind of argument. The same way that um, people did when there was a conversation about taking Edgerton Ryerson's name off of TMU. You know, so very, it's very rare in these situations that the people who raise these concerns and try to make a controversy are actually people with a lot of knowledge of the topic. I, I bring up, I, I think I use the word balance because I look at even a complicated, a complica- I think everybody was complicated in the uh, centuries prior to us. Abraham Lincoln. We're all complicated. Right. <laughs> we're all complicated in 2023. You got it. But Abraham Lincoln was somebody who believed, you know, slavery was morally wrong, but it was sanctioned by the Constitution. So we kind of stepped gingerly around it for a period of time. Thomas and Thomas Jefferson was a slave owner. Like these are heroes to people in the U.S. and and the Democrats more than the Republicans. I, I'm just bringing it up to note that is like again, the we can sit around a dinner table and we have these conversations, don't we? For fifteen, tw- sometimes they're entertaining and sometimes they get pretty emotional, don't they? Yeah, but there's some there's more controversy about some people than others. Um, so, for example, there's more controversy about Thomas Jefferson than there actually is about Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln's decision to um, issue the Emancipation Proclamation during the Civil War is very clear. Um, whatever his other views, um, and they're, you know, like, as you say, as, like many people in his time, he had some problematic views about uh, black people. But he was pretty clear on slavery, and when he issued the proclamation, that was very clear. When the United States decided to abolish slavery, completely in 1865, that was also very clear. So I think the thing with Henry Dundas is that you know, there are figures in history for whom things are actually quite clear. And Henry Dundas actually is one of those figures. He is not, and he was not considered in his time by his own contemporaries in government to be any kind of abolitionist, even either of the slave trade or of slavery. Yeah. Um, so it's hard to know where the, some of the kinds of comments that are coming up about him and he was a clever politician, so sometimes a f- there are a couple of things that he might have said that you could interpret in one way or another. But the overall picture of his policies and his statements in Parliament, is, to, that, that is quite clear. To come back to the Aiken people, many commentators have noted that they had sold slaves to Europeans and were part of the transatlantic slave trade. Is that an argument against Sankofa Square to them or to you? Would they put that to you and say, this is why we shouldn't name the square after this statement either? That, the, the fact that people have come up and said that kind of thing is, is deeply, it's very upsetting. So to put it in context, um, if you look at the conflict in Ukraine right now, so I'm just going to give this a context for you to, so you understand why this argument is so, yeah. is so terrible. Um, you know, in Ukraine... In the east of Ukraine, there are some sort of local leaders yeah. in the east and places like the Donbass who are collaborating with the Russians. Does that make all Ukrainians who are actually victims of the invasion um, complicit in the, what, what's happening to their country? It does not. The same is true for the history of the transatlantic slave trade as for any system of mass violence. The people who created the symbol and who took this aphorism, looked back to go forward and gave it as this gift um, 
that we now have were people who were themselves um, at risk of being enslaved. And to blame all Akan-speaking people, and there, there were millions of Akan-speaking people, let's be clear, to blame yeah. these people who suffered displacement, yeah. um, you know, violence, the sort of political breakdown as a result of the arrival of Europeans on their, on their coast looking for, for human beings as prey, the, that is this, I am shocked that people would come forward to make such statements. Uh, and the other thing I would say is that, you know, even if you do, you do have people from this mm-hmm. region who are collaborators and intermediaries in this trade, you're not going to find a single slave ship registered to an Akan leader. You're not going to find the crew of a slave ship that had, um, you know, Akan sailors. You're not going to find that. All of that came from Europe. I, I guess you knew there'd be pushback on the name, are you, but you're probably not surprised that's the argument that's being, there were people that, were, that are probably Dundas forever. They didn't want to change no matter what it was. It's just the world we live in, isn't it? Um, given the world we live in, I am not surprised. Yeah. And given, like, this, the, the kind of disinformation campaign that we're seeing now, you also saw at the time of the abolition of the slave trade and the abolition of slavery. Um, when it comes to certain, the human rights of certain people, I would say particularly black people, I think many indigenous people would feel the same, and our committee included black and indigenous community leaders as well yeah. as representatives of business, of business improvement associations along Dundas Street. When it comes to these kinds of issues, there are people who are deeply opposed to the idea of representing black history in public space under any terms. And they will say, first they said it was because the history was wrong, that has not turned out to be true. Then they said it was because it was expensive. Yeah. The, the reading the square is not expensive. But still, no, it's that, well, because these people were slave traders. Uh, it will always be something. Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Weekdays at 5.30. We are 6.40 Toronto. Daniel Tate is somebody that has seen enough when he saw Sankofa Square was going to be the name last week. He's got a petition going and he's going to keep fighting to have the name remain Young and Dundas Square. And he joins us now on Toronto Today. Daniel, thanks so much for the time. Good morning, Greg. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Where where does this stand? This happens last week. And uh, and I'm like I said, I've talked to enough people, Daniel, that are upset. They're upset about the name itself. And they're also upset about the lack of public consultation. Are you more one than the other at this point? There, there's a lot of things here to be upset about. Uh, really, the whole thing stinks. Um, where to begin? I mean, first off, late Thursday night, um, we're just, you know, nobody even knew these meetings were happening behind closed doors at City Hall. I go on Instagram and it's just blowing up my feed. Oh, by the way, it's not Young and Dundas Square anymore. It's Sankofa Square. And universally, everyone is like, WTF? Are you kidding me? What does that even mean? I initially thought it was a, like related to Star Wars, okay? The name had, not only was it a complete shock and a stunner to the entire city, in fact, the entire GTA, but nobody understood what the word meant. And then when you actually started researching what that meant, because I thought maybe there is a Toronto connotation, like, is there... You know, maybe there yeah. was somebody in the Underground Railroad named Sankofa or something. So I started digging to understand the name, and that's when things started getting murkier. Well, I think, you know, I'd make the case I think people thought that there might be a name change. Like, this kind of this kind of was out in the ether. Even during the mayoral election campaign, people, candidates were asked about, is this the right time to be? Because there's two practical issues, right, um, Daniel? There's, there's the, is this the right thing to do? 
is this the right time to do it with a city that's $1.5 billion in debt? I'll ask again, does the yeah. one part bother you more than the other? Yeah, I, I, would, I would definitely say that this is uh, not a useful um, allocation of resources. Um, I, have, I have homeless people outside my building right now who are on the streets. I go by, I bring them meals. We're going to spend $700,000 on renaming Young and Dundas Square when there's people outside my building who are hungry and cold. It doesn't make any sense. And the thing is, is that, um, again, you know, the whole Henry Dundas debate, that should be left to the academics. But the um, the advocacy committee, I think they're called the registry or, or register advocacy committee that was tasked with doing the research on Henry Dundas himself. There's also a lot of problems there. Yeah. Bad scholarship is what I'm hearing now from professors at York University who had reached out to the city with compelling evidence that Henry Dundas was being um, portrayed unfairly and they got rebuffed. They got the cold shoulder. And this is coming out right now. And so we have to ask ourselves, like when we have landmark places in our city that have deep meaning for the entire populace, is it fair to have these closed door um, meetings where a select group uh, decides, oh, yeah, by the way, we're just going to unilaterally change the name. Well, let, let, let me let, let me say this, because I think it's important context here, too, for what you say. He's so horrific a person that we're going to change the name of the square and we might we might change the name of a subway stop. But we're not going to change the name of the street. We're not going to call Dundas, Ontario, as a town and say you got to ch- you don't you don't understand how much new info there is on Henry Dundas. It's a half measure, and and it's dipping your toe in the water when you're supposed to jump all the way in. If you really were sincere about how utterly offensive this person is, it's not very sincere. Look, Greg, the name Sankofa originates from the Akan people. The Akan people, when you research it, participated in the slave trade. So how is that appropriate for our landmark civic square at Young and Dundas? Yeah. Why are we not why are we not opening this up to a grand scale civic competition? Why did I not have the opportunity to make submissions? I would have submitted people that are a unifying force in the city. Jackie Shane, for example, one of the great R and B singers of our city. She was black, trans, she played taverns all up and down Young Street, beautiful voice. Why didn't I have an opportunity or anybody have an opportunity to throw her name? How's, Don, how's Donovan Bailey strike you? How's Viola Desmond? Is, uh, Viola Desmond, how does Donovan that strike Bailey you? Won the gold. Right. I think it was in Atlanta uh, in 96. And I started running because of Donovan Bailey. You know, this is uh, the kind of opaque decision making that divides a city. We need to, if, and it's a big if. Yeah. But if we're going to decide to name a huge landmark like Dundas Street, Young and Dundas, it needs significant, robust public consultation. And I'll give you another example. We got to go Metro quick. We got to go quick. Yeah. Yeah. Metrolink, again, they have meetings every day. Yeah. When they wanted to amend the SAM bylaws, Chancellor Asma Malik, we had workshops, civilian workshops every week at Metro Hall. Where was the transparency? We should all be outraged. And lastly, call to action. We have a petition right now. I ask all your listeners, please go to change.org forward slash save Dundas. Okay. If you're as outraged as I am, go there, sign the petition and share it. Change.org uh, forward slash save Dundas. We'll have more conversations about it in the new year, Daniel. I appreciate you coming on today.